Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. What to eat during a run is a question I get asked all the time, and one that I'm far from qualified to answer. Actually, old Halloween candy used to be what I'd pack for long days out on the trails, and that didn't always end so well. So on this week's episode, I spoke with Goo Energy Lab's Nutrition and Performance Research Manager, Roxanne Vogel, about the proper ways to fuel for endurance events, from 5Ks to 100 milers and pretty much everything in between. And as it turns out, we're still learning quite a bit about the impacts different sports nutrition protocols can have on performance. So it was really cool to hear about some of the cutting edge research Roxanne is doing with the folks over at Goo. We also break down their lineup of awesome sports nutrition products, and Roxanne fills me in on some of the insanely impressive mountaineering expeditions she goes on to test different fueling strategies. And before we get into that chat, though, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all of the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, discounts on a bunch of sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Roxanne Vogel. All right, Roxanne, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast today. Absolutely, my pleasure to be here. So I wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons. I get asked about nutrition weekly, and I'm probably the least qualified to answer that as it relates to like sports nutrition and what we're supposed to consume when we're running and stuff like that. And fueling to me is this kind of weird middle ground where it's like, you know, you're told to do what works for you and it's kind of subjective, but there's also a lot of like really interesting science and hard science that supports like different methods. And I think that's like complicated by just the amount of nutrition products, sports nutrition products available to us, as well as like diet trends and general misinformation. And I think a lot of runners and endurance athletes kind of get lost in the fray a bit. So I know you are the nutrition and performance research manager at Goo and Goo Energy Labs makes some really good products that I use almost on a daily basis. So I'm hoping we can kind of dig into a bit of the practical science behind sports nutrition, particularly as it relates to goo. Um, But before we do that, I kind of want to get a sense of your background and how you got into sports nutrition. And I know you're a very accomplished mountaineer and endurance athlete yourself. So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about that first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess going way back, I've been involved in sports and some form of athletics since I was a small child. Um, I played soccer and softball growing up uh, in high school. I uh, played field hockey and oddly enough was on varsity golf team. Um, And then in college, I really picked up running. Uh, Started out as a way to manage stress and everything, but then it just grew into, I love to do it. Um, So I, right now I'm into trail running, um, primarily ultra distances and primarily also mountain trail running. And that I use as a way to train for big mountaineering objectives. So um, obviously sports nutrition plays a big role in how well you can perform on a day-to-day basis and also how well you recover from all of your training. So um, I guess that's where I got interested in sports nutrition specifically. I have an undergraduate degree in human performance and sport. Um, My master's is in exercise and sports nutrition, 
and I'm currently working on my PhD also in sports nutrition. So I'm one of those people who just went to school and never stopped going to school. So I really love learning um, and sports nutrition and exercise physiology both just really fascinate me from a you know, personal learning uh, standpoint, but also from just what you can help other people with. Because as you said, like there's so many questions about sports nutrition and no matter how much we think we know, there's always new nuances to learn about it. So, yeah. So it sounds like you kind of almost used yourself as like a guinea pig in a sense. Um, yeah, you could say that. Um, <laughs> I definitely try out kind of the newer cutting edge science uh, findings in sports nutrition before I'll ever try them out with anybody else, like any of the athletes I work with or anything, um, or even before I jump into a research project with it. Uh, I think it's only fair to understand how it feels going through it before you ask somebody else to do that. So <laughs> yeah, definitely guinea pig. So I, in my research uh, before this episode, or I guess my prep, I saw that Almost everything that came up when I, you know, typed in your name in Google was your lightning Everest ascent. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that and how that came about? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, I really love being in the mountains. Um, I live in the mountains currently. I live in Mammoth Lakes, California. Um, so back in college, I studied abroad in Peru. And at that time, we were able to do the trek up to Machu Picchu, which is in the mountains there. Um, so that was my first time experiencing high altitude. So you go over a pass that's at about 14,000 feet, which is similar to what you'd find in, say, like the Colorado Rockies. Uh, but I was just like, so enamored with the high mountains and high altitude physiology and what hypoxia does to your body. Um, so I started climbing really high mountains around the world, eventually started climbing what's called the seven summits. So that's the highest mountain summit on every continent. And that includes Mount Everest, which would be the highest uh, peak in Asia. So uh, back in 2019, I decided I would try to climb Mount Everest in a way that had never been done before because one, I love science. I wanted to do it as a research project. And two, I didn't have enough PTO to take two to three months off of work to go climb a mountain. So I decided I would try and do it in two weeks door to door, whereas most people climb it in about two to three months door to door. So um, yeah, a lot of training and prep went into that. I slept in a hypoxic chamber in my room and we had one at work at Goo headquarters. So I spent about three months basically living in a hypoxic bubble and just training really hard. And then went and got over to the Tibet side, climbed the mountain, summited. Um, was really fortunate in that I didn't run into any crowds or any you know, bad weather or anything like that. I had the summit to myself with my guide and two other Sherpa. And that was it, the four of us on the top of the mountain that day, which was pretty amazing. So yeah, it was a, it was pretty remarkable, but it was also just a really good learning experience to show people that it is possible to pre-acclimatize at sea level and still be able to climb really high mountains and do it safely. What are some of the issues people run into when they don't acclimatize properly? Yeah, um, altitude is very tricky for a lot of people. Um, so first of all, there's always the risk of uh, acute mountain sickness, AMS, which for most people, if they've ever gone to altitude and just gone up too quickly, even to like a ski resort town at like 10,000 feet, you might feel sort of lethargic. You might have a headache, um, maybe some nausea, things like that. That's usually symptoms of AMS. So that's one level. And then the next level would sort of be like 
uh, more cerebral symptoms, so uh, high-altitude cerebral edema or HACE, which can affect your uh, just ability to function, think, and move. Um, it can be pretty scary. Um, and so that's a really dangerous and life-threatening uh, manifestation of high-altitude sickness. And then there's also high-altitude pulmonary edema. So that's where fluid accumulates in your lungs. Uh, you have a really hard time breathing. You start coughing. There could be you know, fluid rattling around in your lungs. And again, that's a pretty life-threatening. Uh, you have to descend at that point. So those are all the things that can go wrong at altitude, among others, obviously, like avalanche or falling into crevasse and things like that. But yeah. Did you ever run into those kind of issues in your previous exploits climbing high mountains? I've been pretty fortunate. And uh, there's some research to suggest that there could be some sort of genetic component to how well different people adapt to altitude and how quickly. Um, I've never personally run into any sort of serious altitude sickness, maybe a headache here and there. Um, but other than that, no, and I've done some rapid ascents of other mountains besides Mount Everest. I did that before attempting it on the big mountain. Again, you always want to try things out and practice before you do it race day, right? Um, so yeah, I've, I've been pretty fortunate in that I haven't really had any run-ins with severe AMS or anything like that. When you're at those kind of altitudes, how does nutrition come into play? Like, how are you thinking about nutrition? How are you tweaking it from, you know, how you would normally fuel at maybe like an 8,000 or 10,000 foot peak? Yeah, high altitude nutrition is really interesting. Um, in the one hand, or, you know, on the one hand, you rely more on carbohydrate at that, at different higher altitudes than you would at sea level. Um, so there's the thought that maybe you should eat more carbohydrates. It takes less oxygen to break down than, uh, say fats, for instance. But on the other hand, you're also at those very high altitudes to so say above 14,000 feet or so, uh, you're running into the point where you're just not hungry. So getting in enough calories is a really important consideration. And then two, you're also losing significantly more muscle mass at those really high altitudes than you would at sea level. So say 75% of that weight loss you might experience at high altitude is coming from your muscle mass, which is important because you need your muscles to move up the mountain, right? So um, the couple of things I really focused on when I was climbing was one, just getting enough calories, just like a high calorie dense diet. And then two, making sure I had enough protein to support my muscles and hopefully not let them basically eat themselves while I'm at high altitude. That sounds kind of difficult though, because fat, like per gram has so many more calories than both protein and carbohydrates from my understanding. So how did you kind of like balance that? Like, did you, and I know that you work at Goo, obviously. So did you do some preliminary testing on, on some products before heading up there? Yeah. I think one of the coolest things about my job is that I work directly with our product developer, uh, Brandon, who makes all the gels we, you know, we sell, but he also makes anything else that I can come up with in my crazy brain. So we did come up with some fun products to take up Everest, for instance, um, like a high calorie uh, energy bar. And this was actually pretty fat. It was like 50% calories from fat. It was pretty fat heavy. Um, and again, that was just to get the calories in. But to your point, fat is much more condensed of an energy source. So it's, you know, you get more calories per amount of weight. So it made sense to take something that was energy dense, but also pretty fat heavy. Um, and that worked out pretty well. It was tasty. I, there was never a point when I didn't want to eat it. Sometimes, you know, you can get tired of eating certain things or too many sweet things. Um, this was great. And it was what I took up the mountain and I would eat like two of those bars and each of them was 500 calories. So it was like 
a calorie bomb. Um, but again, it tasted really good. So yeah, we've been uh, playing with a lot of different concepts in the lab and it's always fun to work with Brandon and, and try out new things in the field. Yeah, I want to get into a little bit of that uh, later in our conversation, but I'm also curious, did you learn anything during that expedition that can kind of apply to maybe the average athlete? Yeah, so again, we did really focus on not only just protein, but the building blocks of protein, which are amino acids, um, especially the branch chain amino acids, are the most important for basically protecting your lean muscle mass during prolonged uh, depleting endurance exercise. And you may notice that all of our products, pretty much all of our products have BCAAs in them. Um, so, you know, extrapolating one from the other, you can say that we really do focus on the long game when we're thinking about BCAAs for athletes and protecting their muscles. Um, but we're also validating those concepts in the field on these expeditions and with athletes I've worked with. So, I do work with athletes on their specific nutrition projects. One of the coolest projects I've worked on recently was a gentleman who did the Iditarod Trail Invitationals. It's a 1,000 mile, um, so he was doing the foot race version. So basically towing a sled across the Alaskan tundra for 1,000 miles. And we did use an iteration of that Everest bar that we developed for him to get the calories and the protein in. So I, I assume that that Everest bar, because it is like higher in fat, like it doesn't freeze. I've run into issues like if I'm running in really cold climates, getting down some fuel is really hard because it freezes all the time. How did you address that? Yeah, the good thing about the Everest bar is that we did field test it and it doesn't freeze. Um, and then, you know, the other part of it is you're obviously trying to keep it close to your body at all times so that it does maintain a softer texture so it doesn't get super hard. Um, but yeah, it's just that high fat content and low water content makes it pretty resistant to freezing, just like our gels. Like those don't really freeze. They, yeah, I've taken them to the summit of Everest. They don't really freeze. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's yeah. incredible that you're, you managed to, yeah, summit Everest in, in the time that most people get off for, for like a vacation, <laughs> two weeks. Or I believe right, it was like, I was like 10, back in the office Monday. <laughs> yeah. It was like 10 days, right? Or was it? Uh, 10 days in the country. Yeah. yeah. So it was 14 with travel and like two days of three days of flying. Yeah. That's incredible. Do you have any more expeditions planned? Right now, I was actually supposed to go to the North Pole um, in April, but due to the conflict with Russia and Ukraine um, and that proximity to the Arctic Circle up there, uh, things were a little too tenuous. So that's been pushed out until next year. But uh in the meantime, I'm training for my first 100-mile race, and uh, luckily I got into Leadville this year, so I'm pretty excited because it's like the perfect race for me. I think it's, you know, all above 9,000 feet. It's a mountain ultra marathon, and uh, I've supported enough runners on the course and at the race that I feel like I, I know the course fairly well, so I'm pretty excited to take on that distance for the first time. Are you testing any new products for that? or playing, playing around with fueling, or are you kind of just like reverting back to what works? You know, I do have a pretty good system down that I, I like the way it works, and that's mainly using our like Roctane energy drink, which is a pretty high calorie energy drink that we make that with gels. But that's not to say that we're not tinkering with a few things in the lab, because we always are. Yeah. Well, why don't we move into uh, Goo Energy Labs? Can you give me just a little bit of background on the company? 
Yeah, so we were founded almost 30 years ago now, uh, back in 1993 by Dr. Bill Vaughn. And so his daughter, Laura, was an ultra marathoner. Uh, so she was running races like Western States and Hard Rock 100 ultra marathon. And she needed a solution that would help her fuel and not upset her stomach during these races. So at the time, what was really available were things like bars, um, which weren't ideal for those kinds of races. And he ended up coming up with the first energy gel in his kitchen. And, you know, that was the reason his name Goo, we get that question a lot, is he just was making a comment on the texture of it as he was mixing it up in the kitchen. And he noted that it was a pretty gooey consistency. So that's how we got our name. Um, but yeah, ever since then, we've just based everything we do on science and uh, developing products that solve problems that athletes have in the field. So we like to say that we're science-backed and athlete-driven. Um, and we really just try to create products that help people get out and enjoy the outdoors and do the things they love to do. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I feel like from my perspective, you guys have done such a good job that when someone, no one refers to like gels as gels anymore, even if they're like from a different brand, they call them goos, which I think speaks to like how successful you guys are. Um, right. <laughs> just something I, I noticed out on the trails. Um, so what has the evolution been of goos product line over the last, let's say like five or six years? Yeah. So ever since that first energy gel, we've always been looking for different ways and different form factors um, to help people, you know, provide energy, give them hydration on the electrolytes, and then also more recently help them with their recovery. So after exercise, um, we've spun off of the gel and created different drink mixes. Like I mentioned, the Roctane energy drink is like our high calorie souped up version of a gel that's a liquid form. Um, and then we have uh, Stroop waffles, which are like little wafer type things that are pretty tasty to eat uh, and energy chews, which are the little gummy type things. Um, just, you know, because everybody likes something a little different and you might get tired of one thing if you're out there for a long time and you might want to change it up a little bit. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much what we've been up to. We did introduce uh, a capsule line more recently and that's to support runners who are not runners, but athletes who are in higher training uh, blocks who may need extra micronutrient supports, things like BCAAs. We do have capsules of those um, and yeah, probiotics even. So supporting overall athletic longevity, as well as what you're doing while you're training or racing and then recovery for immediately after. Let's go back to, to Roctane because that's a product that I use a lot. Um, but I, I was thinking about them, like, why am I using Roctane versus like something else? Um, given the choice between just kind of a normal goo and a Roctane goo, like why would someone pick one or the other? Yeah, so the, the main difference between our original goo energy line and then our Roctane energy line is gonna be the amount of um, amino acids and electrolytes that are in there, um, and then some differences in performance ingredients. So. We do have BCAAs in our original energy gel, but we have three times the amount in our Roctane gel. Um, we have also additional electrolytes um, that's gonna help with hydration. So the intention really for the Roctane line is kind of pushing your limits, those either ultra distances or like high intensity workouts where you need the extra. Um, and then there's also beta alanine and taurine, which are two additional ingredients that support um, both muscle buffering capacity to help you push into higher intensities. Um, and then taurine can help with, you know, 
contractility of muscle fibers, specifically the heart muscle. So again, it's really sort of for those moments when you're pushing beyond what you would normally do in an everyday training situation. Okay. So would I want to abstain from using that product just in general training and like save it for race day? Or do you think it'd be a good idea for someone to rely on the same nutrition plan in training as they do on the race? That's a great question. And we do get that a lot. And really, it's not like having the extra is going to hinder your performance in any way by any means. Um, So you could use it as part of your everyday nutrition. It's just that it's really going to shine in those circumstances when you need the extra nutritional support. Um, And then some people just really like whatever particular flavor comes in a Roctane format. And so they choose to do that no matter what, because they just really like the flavor. So I'm that way. I really love the cold brew and that's got our highest caffeine content. So I'll find myself sometimes just taking a cold brew before a normal morning run because I really like the flavor and it's got that hit of caffeine that I'm looking for before workout. Is it possible to overdo caffeine? Because I, it's something I'm mindful of, and I know a lot of runners I talk to are. They're like, man, I during that race, I took in however many goos, and that equates to like some ungodly number of cups of coffee. Um, so what yeah. happens when you kind of like start to ratchet up your caffeine content? Yeah, that's a great point. It is definitely possible to overdo it on caffeine, um, and it also depends on how sensitive you are. There are some people who are way more sensitive to caffeine's effects than others and might get jittery after one cup of coffee. Um, That being said, most of our gels come in a pretty low dose caffeine format for that reason. So like 20 milligrams, 40 milligrams, 35 for some of our Roctane flavors. That's pretty much what you'll find in any of our single gels. Um, Even the Roctane drink mix has 35 milligrams in the caffeinated flavors. And that's equivalent to like a quarter cup of coffee. Um, So the only really high caffeine one is the cold brew one I just mentioned. uh, And that's the one where I would probably take that right before I go do something. Um, But yeah, we do actually put a limit on like recommending maybe five of those in a day just because it does have that higher caffeine content. So absolutely, you can overdo it on caffeine. um, But most of our gels are pretty low caffeine content for that reason. And I know a lot of your gels either have a kind of amount of sodium in them and some don't. Uh, What is the role sodium plays in sports performance? Yeah, sodium. um, So sodium helps with hydration. So there's a saying that where sodium goes, water will follow. um, And it does help draw more water into the cell. So you also want to make sure that you're getting plenty of sodium with your plain water intake. So whether that's through taking in gels, taking in an electrolyte drink mix that has sodium in it. Um, Even some people may prefer to take electrolyte capsules if that's what suits them. Um, It is really important to get that in because it is going to help you maintain that fluid that you're drinking instead of just, you know, letting it go out. So, yeah. Well, I want to get a little bit more into uh, the R&D process at Goo because it's something that fascinates me. Like, I'm wondering how an idea goes to production and like what that process looks like on your end of things. Yeah. In R&D, we always start by, you know, what is the why? There's got to be a problem that we're trying to solve for first. And that's usually how things start. Um, And so we'll try and figure out what we're solving and then start with a review of the literature. So digging into the research and figuring out what's been done before, um, what still needs to be done. And then we'll come up with some sort of concept. So we'll put together, you know, these are the ingredients we want to explore for this particular project. 
Um, and then I'll work with Brandon, our uh, product developer, and he'll create a prototype in the lab. So we do have a lab on site where you can go in and, you know, tinker with beakers and things like that, which is pretty much what he does, not me. So we'll come up with a prototype. We'll test that out with some of our, either our goo employees or maybe some of our sponsored athletes, just a small group, inner circle people, um, get some feedback from there and then probably do some different iterations of the project until we feel like it's in a place where we're ready to do what we call a pilot run. So that's kind of like a single run of the product and it's going to be in not finished packaging, but kind of close enough. And then we'll send that out to a bigger group of athletes to test and get more feedback from them. We'll refine it some more if we need to, uh, do whatever adjustments we need to make to the product. And then eventually it'll make its way onto the production line, whether that's in-house at Goo headquarters in Berkeley or uh, elsewhere. But a lot of our, so all of our gels we make in-house. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. I, I didn't know that at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who, who comes up with the flavors? Because I think your line of products has probably some of the most diverse and interesting flavors out of any sports nutrition product on the market. What is your fa- What are some of your fla- favorite f- flavors as well? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, my favorite flavors right now, I would say, are we just launched a salted lime roctane energy gel um, in advance of Western States. So 10% of the proceeds for that go back to the Western States Foundation but it's a really tasty gel and it's especially good during the summer because it's extra salty. So it's the highest sodium content of any gel we currently make. So that's my favorite right now. Birthday cake is always a favorite. It's like any time I could do a birthday cake. Um, and again, cold brew for those pre-run early morning type workouts. Uh, but as far as the flavor aspect of it, Brandon, our flavor scientist, uh, he makes everything in-house. So he'll come up with the flavors that we get to try and then eventually make it onto the line. But we do have a whole flavor science uh, wheel and system that we go back to. So there's a wheel where there's like fruity versus um, savory versus, uh, you know, indulgent flavors. And we kind of look at that and see all right, we've got these gels that satisfy all of these different areas of the flavor palette. What do we need? What are we missing? What's kind of new and up and coming? So you'll notice things like strawberry hibiscus has come out more recently, and that's kind of more of an on-trend type flavor. But yeah, we're always looking at what gaps do we have? um, You know, what's popular right now as far as people's taste preferences? And then what can we actually make work in the formula? I think that's like a super underrated element of a lot of like sports nutrition products is the flavor because in my experience when you're out for a super long day kind of charging pretty hard you don't really have an appetite so finding ways to like diversify your palate and selecting products that you'll eat no matter how horrible you feel is like very very important and I think uh, not everyone really realizes that so I think that like having a flavor scientist is a pretty cool position um, and an important one. Yeah, there's some really cool research about just the power of taste and how it can change your mindset, change your mood. Uh, it can remind you of, you know, good times of the past and such. And that can also influence your rate of perceived exertion or how hard you feel you're working, which ultimately can influence your performance. So yeah, flavor is a really important component to what we do. Where do you think the line is drawn between sports nutrition and general nutrition? Because as athletes, you know, 
we burn so many calories, we have to eat so much food. There's got to be a distinction between, you know, in in sport feeling and out of sport feeling and like how they like kind of overlap. So yeah, I'm wondering, how much do you think about general nutrition? I think so. I like to explain it when I'm working with athletes as like a pyramid or a hierarchy of needs. And at the base of that pyramid, like the biggest block is your everyday nutrition. Like that's definitely the most important component Uh, It's the majority of your day is spent not exercising, right? For most people in most occasions. And that's when you're going to be eating your normal everyday diet. So that's definitely like the bulk of where your focus needs to be. If you're not getting in the, you know, macronutrients and micronutrients you need, you're not getting in all of the, you know, produce, the leafy greens and the colorful fruits and vegetables and lean proteins, then you're going to have problems no matter what. So once you've get gotten that figured out and dialed in, then you can really focus on your sports nutrition or what you're doing when you're exercising, which is going to be different from your everyday nutrition because, um, you know, the blood flow is going to your muscles and not necessarily your gut. It's harder to absorb things. People have GI issues often when they're exercising. So you really need to have uh, formulations that can be easily digested, that taste good and make people want to actually eat and drink. Um, and that are portable, right? So it has to be something that's easy to take with you on the go. So those are sort of the main differences, I guess, between sports nutrition and everyday nutrition. Is there a kind of downside to relying too heavily on liquid calories when you're exercising versus something more solid? I wouldn't say there's necessarily a downside to focusing on um, liquid calories unless you're just not getting enough calories in that way. So if it's too dilute and you're just not getting enough carbohydrates in with your liquid calories, that could be an issue because then eventually you're just going to run out of energy, Um, which is why we make a pretty high calorie drink mix, that Roctane drink mix I mentioned. And then sometimes people just don't want to drink or aren't drinking as much as they should. And then you're also not going to be getting in as many calories if you're not drinking it because you're kind of putting all of your eggs in one basket at that point. So um, for that reason, it's nice to have different options. So if you say you don't feel like drinking, at least you can be eating something. But yeah, I think for simplicity's sake, like having an all-in-one solution, just the calories, electrolytes, and the fluids all in one bottle is just so convenient. The term gut training gets thrown out a lot, especially in ultra running circles. And I'm wondering what exactly that means from your perspective and how we can maybe do a better job training our gut to better absorb some of the fuel we take in when we're running. Yeah, training the gut has been a pretty popular concept, I'd say, at least the last five years. And so that's really what it means is that you're basically putting in more carbohydrates while you're exercising uh, in order to basically upregulate those transporters in your gut and in your intestine that will bring those carbohydrates into your blood system and allow you to use them for fuel during exercise. So the more carbohydrate you eat, whether that's in your habitual diet or during exercise, the more of those transporters you'll have. And so basically the more access you're giving your body to those carbohydrates once you're trying to push them in during exercise. So yeah, um, you know, most people are getting anywhere, anywhere between 30 and 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. That's kind of a standard sports nutrition recommendation during exercise. But recent research has found that you can get in upwards of 120 grams of carbohydrates uh, per hour, which is a ton, right? That's like almost 500 calories per hour if you actually train your gut to be able to tolerate that amount while you're exercising. So, um, yeah, and this can work in, it's a pretty short amount of time. So as little as three days, you can start to upregulate those receptors. Um, and then I think 
commonly I've seen uh, like two weeks of people doing gut training in order to get those high rates of carbohydrate intake. Um, what are some of the things that like runners tend to get wrong the most about fueling? I'd say I, I see a couple things that people tend to mess up with. And the first one is just not getting enough calories in general, uh, waiting too long, procrastinating, and then finding that they're already kind of behind the curve where they need to be as far as their nutrition and hydration needs. So um, that's when you see people, you know, hitting the wall or bonking. Um, so making sure that they're fueling and hydrating consistently is really important. Um, and then the other, I just think product specifically that like people who have never taken a gel before, they often don't realize that you need to also drink water when you take those, um, because that's really how they're meant to be taken. It helps to, you know, absorb all those nutrients. It is a pretty dense little calorie bomb. If you think about it, it's one ounce and a hundred calories right there. So yeah, you do definitely want to take about four to six ounces or a few big gulps of water for each shell you take. All right. So one thing that I kind of think a lot about, especially when I'm seeing my dentist each year, is the amount of sugar I take in when I am fueling. What are your thoughts on, on I guess, sugar consumption in endurance athletes and maybe some of the, the ways we can kind of um, heal some of the negative effects of, of eating so much sugar on a daily basis if we're training heavy? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Excess sugar intake in general is a valid concern and a lot of people just in their everyday diet are getting a lot of sugar. During exercise, it is a pretty convenient fuel source. Um, so there is a time and a place, right, for those sugars and um, they are gonna help you perform better. So I think it's great to watch your sugar consumption outside of exercise. I think during exercise, you kind of need to take in the sugars if you wanna feel and perform your best. So, I mean, on the bright side, most products now, including ours, are gonna be a combination of different carbohydrate sources, so not 100% sugars. Um, so we're using a combination of a complex carbohydrate, which is maltodextrin, and then a simple sugar, which is fructose. So those two together, and then the sugar is actually a much smaller proportion than the maltodextrin is. So um, yeah, I mean, again, at the end of the day, during exercise, you're gonna need those sugars, your body's gonna rely on them uh, and prefer them to fuel itself. And so that's kind of the one case scenario where I would say it's okay to have some sugar. That's good to hear. Although, yeah, my, my sweet tooth likes to hear that answer for sure. Um, <laughs> so moving into a bit more of um, some practical questions, I'm curious, what are the key differences between fueling for maybe a shorter distance 10 kilometer race versus like a hundred miler. Um, what would some of the key takeaways be in, in how to prepare for a race like that from a nutrition side? Yeah. Um, the difference, I guess, between shorter duration I, and that's, I guess, shorter is it's all relative. what I would say is like, yeah, maybe less than a couple of hours or two to three hours even for like a marathon distance or a fast marathon um, versus kind of the ultra distances, which is anything over marathon distance or over say three to hours. Um, you're basically going to need more calories, more carbohydrates, um, but also more amino acids for that longer duration stuff. So for shorter durations, you'd probably be okay with, again, that range of 30 to 60 grams of carbs per hour, 200 to 300 calories per hour, somewhere in there for most people. 
Um, and then for your longer distances, you're going to want to try to get in a bit more. So maybe more like 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Um, and as I mentioned, some people can even tolerate up to 120 grams if they train properly for that. So definitely more calories. Uh, and at that point, again, your muscles will start to break down a bit to help provide energy. Um, and specifically they're going to rely on the branch chain amino acids that are coming out of your muscles. And so that's why one, we do put BCAAs in pretty much all of our products, all of our gels, the Roctane energy drink mix, even our chews and our waffles have BCAAs. But at that point I would also, and I do personally take our BCAA capsules. Um, so like every three or four hours, I would take two to four of those capsules just to help prevent some of that breakdown of the muscle tissue. Do you think there is a benefit to fasted runs? I see that a lot all the time across running populations like, oh, I'm I'm choosing to skip breakfast uh, because I'll become better fat adapted if I run on an empty stomach. Is that kind of just myth or is there some actual science behind that? Fasted training does make you rely more on fat stores, obviously, because you don't have the carbohydrate stores to pull from like you would if you had eaten something just prior to a run. Um, so there is a time and a place for that. And certainly like that's a tool you can use to help your body uh, burn more fat. Um, but again, you're not going to be able to push into those higher intensity intensity domains or get some of those, um, you know, higher output levels as you would if you were fueling properly. So I would save the fasted runs for just easy runs, short, easy runs, um, you know, kind of when there's low stakes, you know, and then there is some science to suggest that it does help you increase your fat burn. But while you're racing, you are pushing at a pretty high intensity level. So you're going to be relying on carbs. So you need to use, learn to be able to use those carbs uh, by training your body to burn them. So definitely fuel to perform. <laughs> right, right. Um, so you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you kind of like to stay on the cutting edge of nutrition research and experimentation. Um, what are some of the things you're you're fascinated by right now? I think there's some pretty cool research. I mean, there's just a lot more research in the last five to 10 years than there were, you know, a decade or two ago. Uh, I was just reading a paper and it was mentioning that back in the 1990s, there was like a hundred papers per year on sports, nutrition, sports, yeah, specifically. And then these days there's about 3,500 per year. So it's like, 10 a day, right? That's a lot of sports nutrition research coming out. It's like, you can't even keep up with it. There's just so much. Um, but anyways, so yeah, I think some of the most interesting stuff that's coming out right now, at least to me is some of the different biomarker testing services that we can use with athletes to help figure out, you know, where their nutrition needs some help, where they're lacking, because that can really impact on performance aside from what they're doing specifically during exercise is just kind of like, where's your body at to begin with? Um, you know, and that goes back to your everyday nutrition. And then there's a lot of work with these continuous glucose monitors, which is pretty cool. So you can see what your blood glucose is doing in real time. Um, so using that to do research and athletes, like while they're in some of these crazy events, there's some really interesting science there that can give us information about how to properly time fueling and make things more personalized for different athletes. I think that's kind of where things are going right now is really towards more personalization with sports nutrition um, instead of making sort of just broad sweeping remarks about what we should be doing. It's nice to be able to tell people like, this is how your body is reacting to this amount of fuel. So we might need to tinker with it a little bit. 
And then I guess the, the last one is the microbiome research that's going on right now. So there's a huge interest in the gut and how the gut influences things like uh, sleep and immunity and also sports performance, but even like brain function uh, and mood. So it's just super fascinating. And we're fortunately involved in some of that research right now. So I'm pretty excited to help out push that field forward because I think there's just so much to be learned there. You also do quite a bit of research in uh, nutrition for temperature extremes, right? Yeah. So my PhD dissertation is focused on um, developing a sports nutrition product to help athletes feel and perform better in hot environments. So say more. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, well, we know that, you know, anyone who's ever exercised in the heat outdoors or whatnot knows that it just feels a lot worse and it feels harder to exercise. Um, And that's for a lot of reasons, whether that's dehydration coming into play or um, even things like mood and just rating a perceived exertion. Um, Your heart has to work harder to pump blood to your muscles, just a whole host of things that make exercise in the heat pretty challenging for people, not to mention more risky because there's always the chance that you could develop, you know, some sort of heat illness or exertional heat illness. Um, We've been working on a product that takes advantage of an ingredient that helps you feel cooler while you're exercising. So the theory is, you know, if you feel cooler, your rating of perceived exertion goes down, you can perform better and, you know, push for longer before you fatigue or get too hot uh, or feel too hot to keep going. So that's what we've been working on for the past couple of years. Um, And I've done some research both in the field and in a heat chamber. Most recently, I was down in Texas for a few months working with athletes and we spent lots of hours in a heat chamber, uh, hanging out with them, running on a treadmill, and then testing the the product to see if it helped make them feel better um, while they were doing. So they did like a 40-minute exercise preload where they were just working at pretty low, moderate intensity. And then we had them do like a 20-minute all-out effort uh, time trial to see how far they could go in those 20 minutes. So it's like basically you're working at your lactate threshold <laughs> for 20 minutes straight, just pushing as hard as you can in the heat. So some pretty, pretty interesting findings. Um, we haven't published them yet, but uh, I'm pretty excited about some of the research we're doing in that area. That sounds like it has some direct application to uh, a race that I think when this podcast comes out will be on Saturday at Western States. Um, I know that like keeping calories down is one of the hardest things to do on that course, especially on a hot year. I wonder how that's changed over the last, yeah, like 10 or so years. Like if there's been any kind of like new strategies people use, have you heard of As far as heat management? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always new strategies. I feel like every year that are coming out, um, you know, whether that's from using ice bandanas around your neck or dousing your head with cold water when you come through aid stations. Um, Right now, one of the newer ones is like Palmer cooling. So cooling your hands to make you feel better. Um, Kind of a similar idea to using the ice bandanas and whatnot, fans and things like that, using cold water or ice slushy slurries that can actually cool you internally and act as like a heat sink from the inside out. Um, So yeah, there's, there's, and in the Olympics, like in Tokyo, there were some athletes were using these like collars that are made out of like this new age phase changing gel stuff that basically pulls heat from your body and into the gel itself. Um, So yeah, there's lots of new strategies always being developed. And hopefully this one that we're working on will add to that as well. So we are always testing it. I will say that we have tried it out at Western States previously. So um, it is 
definitely one of those races where this product would shine. So before I, I get you out of here, um, I do want to spend some time talking about recovery and some things that athletes can do to help that process, expedite that process, and maybe some things that, again, folks are, are, are not doing um, that may inhibit their training in the following days. Yeah. So as soon as you finish, basically recovery begins whenever you're done exercising. And that's when you make all of those adaptations and all of the benefits of what you've done are really going to, you know, come to realization or not. Uh, And you have a large role to play in that by how you choose to fuel and rest after you're done exercising. So most importantly is getting in, um, fluids, getting in protein and getting in carbohydrates. So fluids to replace what you've lost through sweat while you're exercising. Um, keeping in mind that you're going to want to replace some of that sodium as well that you've sweated out. Uh, and then protein, obviously your muscles have been working really hard. You've incurred some damage. And so you're going to need to provide those building blocks or the amino acids to rebuild those muscles and repair any damage you've done. So you want to get in maybe 20 to 30 grams of protein. Um, and then also carbohydrates. So obviously you're using carbohydrates while you're exercising. And even though you might be supplementing with carbohydrates in the form of gels or drinks or whatnot, you're not replacing the amount that you're burning. So you're going to be in sort of a carbohydrate debt at the end of exercise. So you want to try and pay back some of that debt, uh, once you've finished by getting in good quality carbohydrates. So that's where you're going to get in some of your complex carbohydrates, um, and grains, and maybe even some fruit in there. Um, but yeah, after you're done exercising, it's like there's this window of time where you have to really optimize how your body's going to respond to that training load. So yeah, pretty critical time period. What is that window of time? Because you hear, you know, 30 minutes or an hour. Does it vary? Yeah, the window might be more like a garage door. Um, <laughs> so it could be I'd like to see people get nutrition in within an hour of finishing. Um, Some folks say it could be even up to two hours, but I think really the logic of getting it done as soon as you can is, is that way you're not going to forget it. Like it's front of mind. If you just have something that's ready to go in your bag or in your car, when you finish, Uh, I know that's what I always do. I just have my recovery drink mix shake in the car ready to go. So whenever I'm done, I just add the water shake it up, ready to go. It covers all the bases. I've got my protein and carbs and I've got sodium. And once I add the water, I've got the fluids. So one and done and good to go. So you have that immediate post-exercise window. And then how do you kind of treat the rest of the day? Yeah. Once you've gotten in that immediate post-exercise recovery snack or meal or whatever, um, the rest of your day, you just kind of want to go on continuing to do your, your healthy sports nutrition, but overall healthy diet base, right? So you're going to be focusing on quality, complex carbs, produce, so fruits and vegetables, lean proteins, um, and healthy fats, right? So it's all the things that everybody kind of knows they should be doing. Maybe they do or don't, but uh, yeah, pretty much just eating a healthy, well-rounded diet is going to do you wonders. It's just not overthinking it. Yeah, pretty much. Try and shop the perimeter of the grocery store, right? Get those things that are less processed when you can and yeah. All right. Well, I have to ask you about how your training for Leadville is going. Yeah, Leadville training. So I'm lucky in that I live at 8,000 feet. Um, so I do get to you know go out my front door and hit the John Muir Trail, which is just a few miles up the road, and I can get up to 12,000 feet pretty easily. So I'd say the altitude training is pretty much on track. Um, <laughs> uh, as far as you know, getting in some of those longer runs, uh, I did 
a 55k the other day just to sort of get some some extra miles in under the belt um have some long so like this weekend for instance i've got like three long back-to-back runs i'll be doing 20 25 and 25 uh, friday saturday sunday so just getting used to running on tired legs uh, which will be a big part of running in the race and of course i'm always focused on my nutrition so just making sure i'm fueling properly recovering properly getting a lot of sleep uh i sleep a lot and i go to bed really early i'm like an old lady uh <laughs> but yeah I'm, I'm really excited to take on leadville so uh it's about nine weeks from now nice well thanks for coming on the podcast and chatting with me uh, this has been a really useful episode and i know it will be for myself as well as a lot of people ah uh, thank you it was really nice chatting with you that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Roxanne for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>